Uh, thank you for your patience in staying this far. So as you will see, you can visibly see we're making progress here because we have seven IAM sayings. We had an initial payment course as well, so we need one more. And we've got five of them out here. So in the remaining time, we have two further of the I am things, and then there's a last poem, rather like the starting with the before Abraham was I am. There's a last poem about I will be with you to the end of the age. Um, I think the plan is that we should deal with these last two I am's in the final poem um, between now and three, roughly. That we have a bit of a tea break then, and then there's, we're really leaving some time um, really for uh, for some questions and answers after that before we do some 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 closing uh, comments from me and i see meditation by others that's good um, actually by way of start i'm going to sneak an extra poem in we're now coming on to the the um uh sixth of the i am sayings which is i am the way the truth and the life, a much, much treasured saying. I think it's worth remarking that had that saying, at least according to John's narrative, we wouldn't have that saying had it not been so-called Doubting Thomas, who always, I think, gets a bit of a bad press just by being called Doubting Thomas. I wrote a poem about him, which I'm going to read you now, which I call him Courageous Master of the Awkward Question, <laughs> rather than Doubting Thomas. Um, but you may remember that uh, Jesus in John's Gospel is saying, I'm going now to prepare a place for you, and when I've gone and prepared a place for you, uh, I will come and take you with me, so that where I am you may be, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And you can imagine all the disciples outwardly looking very grave and stroking their beards, and inwardly thinking, what? What's he talking about? I've absolutely no idea. We've only just got here. Are we going somewhere else? I, you know, what is this? But they're all, none of them say Thomas. Thomas says, Master, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is the student that every teacher wants. <laughs> the student who dares to say that they don't get it and asks you another question back. So in response to, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We know the way. In response to that, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Extraordinary, profoundly important thing, which we simply would not have were it not for Thomas. So just before we look at that poem, I'm just going to read you my little tribute to Thomas. Every church needs its Thomases. And every person in their praying life needs a Thomas inside. And my book, Parable and Parables, from which these poems are drawn, really erased my sort of unleashing my inner Thomas and uh, getting, you know, asking the question. So, Thomas the Apostle, we do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question, you spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. Oh, doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wreck, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him, and find him in the flesh. 
Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has erred and granted you your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. So there's a little thing about Thomas, I mention it because the context in which we get answer, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father but by me. The context is open, searching question. But with you here, I don't get the rest of it. Okay? And there's a place for that and a place for that. Person who says that, absolutely essential place in the community of the church. And yet, ironically, the very answer that Jesus gives to doubting Thomas, whom he loves so well, has been used as a blunt instrument with which to bash and belabor and generally exclude anybody that's not right up to they're super orthodoxy. You have these people going, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That means unless you believe in Jesus exactly the way I believe in Jesus, you haven't even come to the Father at all. Yeah? As though that's what he was saying. And again, here I must appeal to this notion that the prologue of John's Gospel is, as it were, underwriting the whole thing. It's watermarked into every other page of the text. It glimmers through. So yes, indeed, let us affirm it. No man cometh to the Father except by me. Let us also affirm that he is the light which lightens everyone that comes into the world. That all things were made through him and without him was not anything made. He came unto his own. Okay, his own received it not, but it was his own. So in John's Gospel, from John's perspective, nobody is without in some sense, some element of the gift of Christ's Logos within them. His light is there. It may be unknown, it may be acknowledged, they may be seeking daily to extinguish it, but it is there. Yeah? In the very shape of their inquiring mind. The one who said, ask and you will be answered, knock and the door will be opened to you, seek and you will find. Yeah? So I just simply cannot believe, I just, it does, I think it's a plain misreading of the text, to try and say that um, the only understanding of no man comes to the Father but through me is, is th means but through having now fully subscribed to somebody else's formulation about me. It must mean that when we come to the Father, we do it in the Son. That the Son is both divine and human. He is the bridge between God and humanity. Certainly, when we turn to the Father and he turns to us, it is the Son, beautifully, perhaps anonymously, gracefully, but nevertheless, wonderfully enabling that to happen. But not making our outward knowledge of him a condition of that. Throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus constantly doing real good, life-changing good, to people who don't even know his name let alone satisfy themselves as to its full divine status. He doesn't say, well, let's just go through the creed, and when you've finally got this right, we'll think about dealing with that leprosy, shall we? You know, it doesn't do that. He just, like, changes things straight away. So yeah, I, I say this as a preface to reading this poem, because um, I've occasionally read the poem and had people oh, yeah. fallen into deep heresy. 
So we shall see what you think. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the but by me. Wherever someone knows that they are lost and cries for help to find the way back home and turns towards their father's house at last, you are their way before they know your name. Wherever someone searches for the truth and tests each easy answer in its turn, stressing the question, pressing to the pit, you are the truth they cannot yet discern. Wherever someone sorrows over death, yet seems to glimpse the gate beyond the grave, the living spirit in the dying breath, you are the life within the life they love. You come to us before we ask or pray, till you become our life, our truth. So I, uh, to me, that's the only way to understand that. In some sense, I'm not saying it's a full understanding of it, but we have a beautiful collect in the in the which is a regular collect from um, the Church of England, Almighty God, from whom all good counsels, all holy desires, and all just works do proceed. Grant unto thy servants. Now, either we have to say that unless somebody is within three foot of an open book of common prayer and, and is praying to the right God, there are no good counsels and no just works and no holy desires to be found anywhere in the world. Or we have to say, wherever there is a good counsel or a just work or a holy desire, in what religion soever, in what place soever, in whomsoever, the source of that good counsel and of that holy desire and of that just work is God Almighty who comes to us in Jesus Christ. Now, someone will say, oh, well then what's the point of evangelism? You know, what's the point of evangelism if we've all, we're all kind of grooving on down there anyway? Um, but of course, if you have an anonymous benefactor who actually loves you deeply, but has at this point remained anonymous, and I know who your anonymous benefactor is, and I know that actually, even though they've been anonymous so far, your anonymous would be delighted for you to turn to them and would be able to help you even more, particularly if you actually turned to them and spoke to them. And I knew who your anonymous benefactor was. I think I would be reasonable for me to say, I think I ought to share that with you. you know. But I would be up to something that was already very beautiful and going on in you rather than saying, oh, you're in outer darkness, wait, gnashing your teeth, now let me bring you into the light. So, so it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for telling people about Jesus. Um, it just means we've got the good bit of the news, you know. <laughs> it's kind of, so there's that, but there's also, um, it go, comes to us. I mean, he may not be our anonymous benefactor. We may know his name and we may thank him for that. But it doesn't mean that we constantly have the best ideas about him, in fact. Some of our own constructions about who he is and what he's like may have to fall away, almost as it were, shifted aside by the abundance of his mercy and giving, and the abundance of his mercy and giving in others. You know, um, uh, 
what is that line in the hymn that goes, um, it's a, um, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. So, you know, but we, but we, 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 Something is too narrow. Yeah, we're, we're making him narrow. Um, with a strict, uh, you know, um, a strictness not his own, by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. You know, so, so that's, that's um, far, from, far from eliminating evangelism, I think this reading allows for it, but it means we have to be the recipients of it, the givers of it. So, <coughs> One sends the poem out into the world. In this poem in particular, I'm so open out to it. I'm saying like wherever a lost person, wherever a searcher for the truth, wherever a griever over death. So it, it's particularly inviting to all of you to fill in the blanks, as it were, and make the spaces and shape it with your own. So again, of course, I was very interested to see what Linda would do with this. So Linda's going to show us what she's done with this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we, let's, well, let's look at this first. I think it's better to see the real thing in the flesh first. I mean, you could, I think you could all see that, can't you? So you could talk about, talk about the painting, Derek. Um, it would be very, when I've gone walking, <coughs> when I've gone walking um, up in some lovely mountains, you see this path, don't you, sometimes? It's going like this, and it's all rocky, and you think, oh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or the long and winding road. And um, So there was, that was in my mind when I did this painting, that I wanted to do a, a kind of, this kind of road. But actually, this is what I felt was actually needed. It needed to be a modern road, because God is not... In history, he's not stuck in a Bible, in, a, in an old book. God is, the divine presence is, is as much on a tarmac road as in a, a little donkey-ridden Jerusalem road. So here we have a road. Um, I'm from the north of England, Yorkshire and Scotland. So the opportunity to paint hills is wonderful to me because I don't see them very often. But I wanted to do a road that was a modern road um, and cutting through the, the, the landscape, which is divine, the man-made and the divine together in one painting. And here we have, if you can see it, a little church, because in the, paint, in the poem, Uh, and turns towards their father's house at last. You are their way before they know your name. For you know we go past so many things so fast on these tarmac roads. We're always whizzing along. And maybe, maybe they'll go into the father's house or maybe they'll just whiz straight past it. But either way, it's going up towards the light. Thank you. Um... Yeah, I, again, struck by this. I've lots and lots of things about it, but um, 
One of the things I particularly like in this painting is the proportion of sky over against um, land. I really like the fact that the horizon, in a sense, is low. There's the reaching up of the land in the mountains, but however high they reach, there's this kind of magnificent beyondness, the sense of the huge, open spaciousness. <laughs> yeah. Which again, I feel, yeah, we're being invited into this. Well, people do explain my poetry to me, and it's often a revelation. Um, so I like that. I like that, that invitation of the openness. I like the movement from the cloud to the blue. But I also particularly liked, um, obviously, there's an extraordinary perspective, isn't it, when lines converge on a horizon. And um, we know, in a sense, that, that that's our focal point. And that's why the lines are converging. And that if another person was standing in another place, the focal point would be somewhere else. But it would be equally true, and it would equally be a focal point. You can't say, look, the obvious focus is there. And somebody's saying, no, well, no, actually, you know. Um, but neither does the fact that there might be another focal point in this picture if I were standing somewhere else. That doesn't deny the complete truth and meaning of that focal point. And what's being focused on in, say, two perspectives and two focal points is the same reality, the same beautiful meeting of sky and earth, the same mediation of light through atmosphere and cloud, seen from a slightly different perspective. But it ultimately the same thing. And I wondered whether there wasn't just something in that, something to be in the suggestion of that, that helps with what I'm doing in the poem. When I'm saying wherever somebody is, eventually they're going to come this way. That the lines will meet. The different lines will meet. On the horizon. The other thing is you get a really weird sense, don't you, when you're driving towards something um, on roads like this. It's a bit like the, the special effects in uh, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, when the lights are all coming up. And for a minute, you don't know whether you're driving towards a fixed point and your speed is making the lights flash past you, or whether, in fact, you're still and the thing is radiating towards you. And, of course, once you get up from Einstein, you realise that both are true. You know, there's a famous story about Einstein changing trains in England where he goes up to the, to the, to the train inspector and he says, excuse me, does crew stop at this train? <laughs> uh, and, which is, you know, it's completely reasonable, actually, as a description of motion. So, again, I just get that slight sense. I have this sense of this radiating towards me. And yet I know I'm invited to think, just by the very blurring of the light, that I'm in movement that way. So, this place where my father's house is there and I... We are, we are on a journey to meet each other, for sure. But I, can't, I can understand it as my journey to him. But I can equally understand it as his journey to me, as the whole place shifting towards me, as it were, to find me. And again, I think that's one of the things about perspective and the way it gets. And of course, I love, I love the landscape as well, because that's particular. Um, and the sense of the light. It's a curious thing in cloud. Samuel Palmer gets this all the time, where... You sort of expect, the, you know, like the sun is up there, 
and the clouds are underneath. So you kind of expect clouds to be lighter on top than they are underneath. Theoretically, that should be the way it is, shouldn't it? Like they can't just... But you do get this weird effect, don't you? It's to do with the where the top of the cloud is dark and the brightness is underneath, and there's a bright litness underneath darkness. If you does anybody know Samuel Palmer's painting, um, uh, The Magic Apple Tree, yes. which is amazing, you know, and there's a brightly lit field of kind of intense golden grain under a very very dark cloud. I just am endlessly moved by that. And I think it's to do, well, G.K. Chesterton has this phrase where he says, every one of us carries within us a buried sunrise of wonder, as it were. Thunderware beneath the layers of all of our mundane experiences, the sheer brightness of suddenly being here. And um, George Herbert in another place says, as though a star, talking about the, the death of Jesus, as though a star should come into a tomb. You know, that there's a sense in which we can look for the light of Christ underneath as well as above and under the dark cloud. And this intense bright light casting a light up onto the clouds says something about that for me as well. So those are all things I find in there. I like it. Thank you very much for holding it. So, um, yeah, we can discuss what I'm saying here. I, I want to say just quickly... I, I read this poem in, I've read this poem two or three times in America, and I don't know, particularly among some American churches, uh, I have been, you know, I was sort of hold over, over the coals a little bit for this one. One of the things that, when I was reading this poem about I am the, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is I was kind of accused of, um, uh, of uh, universalism. Now, universalism is the notion that, it's not simply the notion that everybody is saved, but it's the notion that everybody is automatically saved. That's the point. The difficulty, the problem with universalism is it can make salvation itself, this glorious and utterly fulfilling, completely freely chosen personal relationship with the beloved saviour who's died for you. It can make that, like you have no opt-out from that. You know, it can make it feel like falling off a production line. And that cannot be true of a loving relationship. Now, so in order to make a yes, gloriously yes, there has to be the possibility of no. So this is one of the main objections to universalism, is that, is that it eliminates the possibility of the freedom of the creature, and the freedom of the creature is the very thing which makes love possible. So there's a kind of contradiction in terms. Where if you say God is love and therefore love must reign forever, uh, therefore we'll all... Of course, there is a true universalism in the sense that he universally loves us. He loves us all, once, once only, once for all. You know, there is, you know, he beholds his whole cosmos and says it's good. But in the tension between the now and not yet, and in the field of our freedom, we have to recognize that, certainly we're recognizing ourselves, that we often refuse grace, that we turn our backs on it, that we look for it and yearn for it, and at the same time we repel it, because we want everything on our own terms because we want to be our sovereigns. John Milton puts this absolutely perfectly in Paradise Lost, when he gives Satan, who's of course been created good and could have been happy in heaven forever, he gives Satan the line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Now you might think it's ridiculous, how, what rational could possibly say that, but look at President Assad. You know, the, human beings are constantly making that choice, better to reign in hell. 
that they make that choice because they're, we make that choice because we, let's not say that much, we make that choice because we're, we're wounded creatures and we've got poor self-esteem and we cross up with the external trappings of power and all of that's true. We also have choice. So we have to believe in a possibility that somebody could turn back on God. But that doesn't prevent us from believing in the possibility that that same person might eventually turn around. We can't bet. Amazingly, the comparatively conservative 19th century Anglican convert Cardinal, Cardinal Manning, um, Cardinal Manning um, was once asked about hell. And he said, we are entitled to hope that hell is a place of eternal torment, eternally untenanted. <laughs> now that wasn't universalism. That was hope. That it had to exist as a self-chosen possibility. <coughs> God's will for us is our bliss. But often our own little ego wills get in the way. C.S. Lewis once said, really there's only two alternatives. Either we are going to say, and have it bliss to God at last, who loves us and loves us more than we can love ourselves. We're going to say, thy will be done. Or with infinite regret, but honouring our choice, he is going to say to us, thy will be done. And that's just a real choice. So my poem on I'm the way, the truth, is about the reality of choice. And it's simply saying, Jesus is there as the, as the way and the truth and the life, every time the way is taken, every time the truth is preferred. I mean, I make Socrates a great you know, seeker after Christ because one of Socrates' great phrases when he's disagreeing with one of his friends in the beautiful Socratic dialogues is, he says, you know, to Alcibiades or whoever it is, he says, you are dear, but truth is dearer. You know, <laughs> I actually want to follow the truth no matter what, wherever it leads me. And um, uh, so, so this is about trusting in the way God himself trusts in our power to choose and honouring his presence whenever that choice is enabled to be the choice to find him or to return to him. Um, so um, it's interesting that in I am sayings, there's a tension between, or a spec, perhaps tension is too long, there's a kind of spectrum between the absolutely embodied in particular, like bread, or a door, or a shepherd, and the kind of, um, if you like, more abstract or open, like resurrection, and life, and way, and truth. Yeah? But what interests me is that... <laughs> <laughs> the abstract is always contained within the particular. So we start with bread and we finish with wine, with the vine. In the end, he, he, he gives us a really embodied thing. And before we read the, 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 the last one, the I am the vine one, I want to um, share with you a, a little bit of Shakespeare, uh, which is just my favourite passage about what poetry is how poetry works. If you want to know how poetry works, you might as well ask the best. So, you know, Shakespeare's account in Midsummer Night's Dream. About poetry, you know, where famously he says this, um, the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling 
that glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the form of things unknown, the poet's pen turns into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. You remember that? Just great. And that's like totally it. And what, what's great about that is the range of the poet's view. Heaven, uh, uh, heaven. You know, the invisible and apprehended and scarcely voiceable, the big, the earth and strong and particular and concrete. They're both involved. But actually it's about the one becoming the other and the other opening onto the one. The imagination bodies forth. I mean, that's just genius on Shakespeare's part. Juxtaposition of the two words imagination and bodies. And bodies as a verb. You know, I always think of the, the, the meaning of words, the, 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 the range of possible meanings of a word, as being a bit like the sort of invisible magnetic field on a little kind of bar magnet. Do you remember how interesting it was when you, when you, when you had the bar magnet in the, in the science experiment on a piece of paper and then you sprinkled the iron filings on it? You saw it. So sometimes you don't quite know what, what a word is going to be until you see the other things around it and it starts, starts moving and shaping them and you say, oh, that's the power of this word. The best bit in those things with magnets at school was when you got the two magnets. And, okay, you could take two magnets that attracted, go like that. But if you turned the pole around, when you tried to push them to the same poles together and they didn't want to go, and you could actually feel with your fingers on the bar of the magnet the sort of pulsation of power and energy quivering between these two things, which had you had magnet A over here and magnet B, they would have, you just thought, I know what this is. You, know, you would have had no idea. But it's only because they're brought together that, that something is released, yeah? Well, I think all words are like that. And the full power of what they can do, and the sense of the, the if you like, semantic, you know, s s semantics is to do with meaning, the semantic energy, as it were, the field of semantic energy around a different word, is made manifest when you bring certain words together. And sometimes it's like the poles of the magnet. It's the very p power to constrain these two words forever to sit next to each other in a sentence that releases a new kind of meaning. So imagination bodies. You know, we say the word imagination and we think, oh, it's, you know, airy, fairy and thin and wispy and filmy and bodies is all about blood and sweat and bones and muscles and, you know, kind of the concreteness of it. We just put it together. And what is imagination? It is imagination bodying, imagination bodying forth. And when imagination bodies something forth, it then has form, it has shape, and then, wonderfully, it becomes a habitation. It becomes something that will be hospitable to other things, that new meanings will come and inhabit the shaped thing. And the house has a door, and there's, you're beckoned through it to a meaningful encounter. And you can see that's how poetry works. And it, and it, it does it two different ways. Some poets start at the heaven end, and they've got, they've got this kind of amazing, infinite, inspirational idea. And they look out one after another for images, one after another, that body forth for a moment what that is. And there are other poets, like, say, for example, um, Seamus Heaney, um, who, who, I mean, John Donne will be an example of a person who has brilliant ideas and goes like one stunning image after another to just get it, but the idea was already there. Seamus Heaney has this fantastic capacity to speak what he calls in one of his poems the rough 
porous language of touch. You remember his poem about the digging and the potato? Just, we, you know, we love the squelch and slap and the cut through the edge of the soil and the cool feel of the potatoes in our hands and my father's rump, you know, bending the potato drills. Yeah? And it starts with a very concrete image. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Then he looks down at his dad digging. It's a beautiful description of digging. All the details of it, potatoes, the peat bog, everything, and all these wonderful boasts, very particular. My grandfather could cut more turf on Tony's bog than any other man, you know, and all this stuff. And then he comes back and he goes, at the end of the poem, he goes, but I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. And suddenly, everything that he said in that completely earthy way about digging becomes a wonderfully bodied forth truth about imaginative writing. Every kind of digging that he's referred to, you go back and you say, oh my goodness. By being completely true to the earthly reality, he also expressed and embodied the disembodied. His glance from earth to heaven, earth to heaven, imagination, body, form. So I spent ages thinking about this great Shakespeare thing and, and poetry, and thinking, boy, you know, he's really got it right there. Fine. And I don't know, I, I wish I could remember what moment it was that I must have turned to Shakespeare or just remembered Shakespeare after yet again turning, as I do always, to my beloved prologue to John's Gospel and to the way that seems to be, to me, a key to how things are. And I suddenly thought, oh, goodness. That passage in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and all the more playfully, because Midsummer Night's Dream is set BC in Athens, so you can't, is a beautiful commentary on the prologue to John's Gospel. If you think about the beginning of John's Gospel, it's all... Heaven and apprehensions, you know. In the same passage in, in Shakespeare goes, imagination apprehends more than cool reason ever comprehends, yeah. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was with God in the beginning with God, and you're going like, really? I, you know, like, you can't see that, can you? And then you get this extraordinary thing, you know, et verbum caro factum est, and the Word was made flesh, and what? dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glories of the earth, full of grace and truth. He dwelt among us. He had his habitation in our midst. In the Latin text, which of course Shakespeare would have not known there would be King James because it hadn't been translated then, but he, <coughs> he had the Latin text and he had the Geneva Bible and he, who knows, he may have had the Dewey version as well, but he certainly would have known that the first question that the disciples asked Jesus in, in, in John is Magister ubi habitat. Where is your habitation? Where are you staying? To which, of course, he replies, Come and see. And in some sense, I think, Shakespeare is gently saying that any act of poetry that we make is actually us in our finite minds doing again what our Heavenly Father always does, that in Jesus Christ, the divine imagination and the divine love is bodied forth and given a local habitation and a name. And then we come in to see him. So there's a particularly powerful thing on there for when that bodied forth imagination of God 
himself become fully human in a human body, appeals to our imaginations and gives us effectively some poetry in which he bodies something and says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. He reimagines himself as a vine. He asks us to reimagine ourselves as the branches. He actually calls us completely to re-understand who we are. And um, so that's a kind of starting point for this um, last of the I am. Um, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth, I just became, fell in love with the word abide when I was reading this. I just thought, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same is forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. I am the vine. So much you could do with this. Obviously, in another mood or another person wanting to be more severe with you, would have um, written a whole bunch of poems about being pruned and all, <laughs> all the pruning. But as you can see, I don't hold much with pruning, you know, shears of any kind and over to me. <laughs> so I just thought I'll just stick, I, 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 I'll stick with the vine and the grapes. I know, I know what to do with that. So I am the vine. How might it feel to be part of the vine? Not just to see the vineyard from afar, or even pluck the clusters, press the wine, but to be grafted in, to feel the stir of inward sap that rises from our root, himself deep planted in the ground of love, to feel a leaf unfold, a tender shoot as tendrils curled, unfurled, as branches give a little to the swelling of the grape in gradual perfection, round and full, to bear within oneself the joy and hope of God's good vintage to its rough and whole. What might it mean to bide and to abide in such rich love as makes the poor heart glad. This is when I was writing the, the last line. I was just think, trying to just think of being there and being like the greats and the inward. And I, I particularly, I like words of one syllable, you know. But it's quite a tricky thing if you do a whole line of words of just one syllable. Uh, but I did at the end. And I just wanted them almost to be like each, like individual greats, like you could sort of taste each one and make it very simple but actually of course i'm alluding to the beautiful phrase in scripture wine that maketh glad the heart of man uh, but in such rich love as makes the poor heart glad but um because normally you think it's fine <laughs> with i make pen time with so to actually just make the ten really ten it's like a different thing but uh yeah, I find it very appealing that one should be. I, th I feel very strongly about trees and growing things anyway, and the idea of becoming tree from yeah. you know, being rooted, having branches. Of, you know, we can hardly think about ourselves. We talk about roots and we talk about branches and fruits, and don't we? I mean, we, 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 we of all the things God has articulated into being, trees seem to be the things that articulate most for us what it's like for us to be. Particular being. And obviously, we've got the trees in the Garden of Eden. I particularly like the Norse, um, 
the legends of Asgard, the Norse legends, where the first human beings are called Ask and Embla, Ash and Elm. And the man and the woman in those stories, the man is an ash originally, and the woman is an elm, and they step out of their tree into their being human. But they, they kind of, you know, they still have that tree-ishness about them. Um, so I was trying to think about all those things. Yes. But again, I was oh, fascinated to see what Linda would do. So let's see what Linda made of that. And we can talk about what your own imagination is. Let's get painting. So if you, um, it, you might not know, but Malcolm has a blog that any of you can subscribe to, and um, he puts all his poetry, not just the ones in his books, but other ones too, on that blog, and it often has some kind of, uh, well, always has some visual response. And over Advent, I made this in response to um, the last poem of Advent you made it Advent, and I just love this image. Um, if you're familiar with Matisse, he did one called The Dance. You know this one, yes. Well, I have a, I painted it, a large one, and it's in my lounge. It's huge. <laughs> I copied it, and I even signed it Matisse. <laughs> um, I'm not going to sell it, don't worry, I'm not. Sorry. Um, it's all right, welcome. So if any of you um, get uh, the Center for Action and Contemplation uh, email, somebody does. Richard Raw has been, well, the group have been talking about the Holy Spirit. And he was talking about uh, the dance. And he says, but God isn't one of the dancers. And he isn't the music. God is the dance itself. Is the very dance itself, and God is is the relationship between us. God isn't just in you or in me or in the air between us, but God is the relationship. And I've been just reveling in the the, the conversations that these people at um, the Centre for Action and Contemplation have had, and this is very much how I feel about dance music, poetry, art, singing, especially singing and dancing. I think we just don't do enough of it in this country. Um, and I, would, I, I think it's just wonderful to dance with people. To, and I, I do on a Friday go to a free dance event. That, I don't mean you don't have to pay. I mean, it's free dance. You do your own thing. And it's absolutely liberating just to, nobody's there saying, oh gosh, look at the state of her. Well, they might do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but dance, and it's just such a wonderful thing to do with other people, and, and it's physical, and they're all whirling around this tree, which is rooted, and of course it's not a real tree, it's some kind of magical tree in magical forest. Um, but dance has that capacity of saying, well, this is actually what it would feel like to be part of the vine. Yeah. Because there's not one grape that's more important than another grape. Yeah. We're not competing with each other. We're yeah. dancing with each other yeah. and celebrating with each other. Um, I told you Malcolm has a band. Uh, well, last year I went to hear him and, and I'd had a bit of a scary cancer. 
scary thing. And uh, they, they started playing, and I said to my friend, oh, come on, let's go and dance. And nobody was dancing in this club at the time. And, well, I just went completely mad, because I knew I wasn't going to die by this time. And I remember thinking, he's never, ever going to invite me to come to one no, of these. great. Places. I was delighted that you'd have to encourage the others. <laughs> the man, uh, uh, old man said, I nearly died watching you, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to dance, dance. Properly, uh, like no one's watching. Uh, so, to me, this is how it would feel like to be a vine. Thank you. Yes, so uh, what, again, since, I mean, I had seen this image, so it's really in another context. Um, so, I liked it for lots of reasons, but let's just pick up this thing of the dance and the movement. Obviously, if you have a vine in the vineyard, you can imagine, well, you could imagine the wind blowing through, and I actually have quite a lot of movement in the poem about the, this the feeling the leaf unfurl and the branches giving a little to the swelling of the grape. So my, my vine is already, as it were, living and rustling a little bit. It's got that sense of the life in it. And of course, if you could use that beautiful thing we invented in the 20th century, which I think previous artists would have just loved, time-lapse photography, where you can see the thing that you thought was still is moving. And those pictures of a flower unfolding or, you know, if you had time-lapse photography of a great vineyard, not only over, over its different lives within the seasons, but its longer life as it spreads, you would see a very beautiful dance in which there is a central vine, but there are all the tendrils moving. And you know, um, In fact, that paradox of the tree that dances or the tree moves is something very kind of central to our imagination. I think that may be to do with our, our sort of northern origins, but um, it comes up again and again in different ways. Obviously, it comes up in, in Macbeth um, in a rather sinister way, where it's not really the forest moving, it's just the chaps have cut it down. Mm -hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien, this reports that when he was 15 and he read Macbeth, he was so excited by the prophecy that went till Burnham Woods become to Dunsinane that his mind was full of the image of moving trees. And then when Shakespeare finally produces the scene and it's just these wretched English soldiers cutting the, you know, cutting the trees down and holding them in front of them and moving, Tolkien was outraged and refused to finish the play. And he said, this is shoddy. It's typical of the shoddiness of Shakespeare. He wasn't that keen on Shakespeare. You know? And kind of quietly resolved, one day I'm going to write something where a forest really does get up and walk and we'll see what it's going to be like, you know. So he did. Um, but actually, it was Tolkien's friend Lewis who, for me, expressed this combination, this impossible combination we want to see between trees and dancing in a very, very beautiful scene in um, uh, Prince Caspian when um, the boys typically immediately assume that they should lead the party because they're boys, uh, are solidly and stolidly leading the party of the children who are going to rescue Prince Caspian and go, in completely the wrong direction. And it's Lucy, the littlest and the little girl, who wakes up from a delicious dream in which she felt that Aslan was calling her. And the moon is out. And she hears this yearning, stirring, calling voice, and she goes out into the forest and the moon. And then just as she's making it, it's very beautifully described, that she's sort of making her way, as you do, like this, through the woods, in the moonlight. And she suddenly feels that the trees are taking her hand and that she's become part of a dance. 
And she gets to the end of the glade, and the trees are dancing in a circle dance, exactly like this. And, uh, and like, and she said, so Lewis says, Lucy said it was, it was, it was like a like a very beautiful country dance. And then Lewis says, it says, I suppose when trees are dancing, it's a very country dance indeed, you know. <laughs> and they're moving around, and then of course they they sh and of course the circle around which they're moving is Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure in there. There he is, and she rushes towards him. And of course, then he has a message for him. This, this apparently completely different, this beautiful circle dance of trees in the moonlight, which is a beautiful experience in and entirely for itself, is also Lucy's vocation to turn around and go back and wake the boys up and say, look, we've got to go, and we've got to go in the other direction, and all kinds of practical action springs from what is in itself just a very beautiful kind of contemplative um, moment. So I always love this, this, the trees and dancing with that. So yes, the vine, we can, you know, he asks us to be divine, and in one sense, he does ask us to be grafted into him and to be rooted in him. And Paul talks about that great prayer to the Ephesians, that you being rooted and grounded in love may know, may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height to get another tree image, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That's very true, and the tree image runs right the way through Scripture from the first psalm, Beatus Vir, um, blessed is the man that hath not sat in the seats of the ungodly and asked of me. He, he should be like a tree planted by the waters who bringeth forth his fruit in due season, his leaf shall not wither. To the end, when the leaves of the trees of life are on either side of the river, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. So the tree is going all the way through. But the, 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 the dynamic, I suppose, of dance brings in the idea that we're rooted and grounded in love, but the love in which we're rooted and grounded is on the move. It's actually a dynamic love. It's a love that kind of carries us forward. So this is the imagination is for parent possibility. We actually combine these things. But I love this, I love the joy, I love the way they're completely absorbed in their dance, and they're there with each other, and yet at the same time, they're giving a focus to the tree. It's, um, it's very beautiful, and again, completely unexpected. So, um, that's lovely, do you want to finish that there? So, uh, um, I'm going to later do the do the final I will be with you poem, but since this is the last of the two, um, the two, uh, these two are the last two of the seven, um, perhaps you'd like to come back to me on any of those, on the uh, I am the way and the truth of the life, or I am on the, on the I am the vine, either for comments or clarification, or even more for your own, um, how it falls in your imagination, as it were, what it is that you see. Um, in a way, in the just to start with, with I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. There's lots of ways of dividing a sonnet. Um, the Shakespearean way is three, fours, and a two, um, where you have a quatrain A B A B, and then another quatrain, and then another quatrain, and then you have a couplet. And I felt this thing because it had way, truth, life, invited that. So I actually wrote a quatrain on the way, a quatrain on the truth, a quatrain on the life, and then tried to gather them all together in the couplet. And I hope that each quatrain, in a sense, invites you 
to find or to know or perhaps to be that someone. Each of those quatrains begins with the same words, wherever someone, wherever someone, wherever someone. So maybe it would be helpful to me um, to start with that and to see if you recognize those someones or know of any of those someones of whom I say that they are already in When I do this in America, that's when they say, actually, you're a heretic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway, anybody want to come back? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you can be a hopeful universalist, but probably not an absolute universalist without ruling out free will. Yeah. The suspicion of universalism, yeah. Um, yeah, universalism, yeah, see. The opposite end of universalism in some ways is solipsism. It's another th philosophical position, you know, that sol ipse means only self. Where somebody thinks that because everything you perceive comes into your own, comes into your mind, and therefore your own self-existent consciousness is the only evidence you have for anything, you might be making the entire thing up. And that, you know, there's only you. I remember my, my father, my father describing this position to me philosophically because uh, he wanted me to be, learn how to think. And then he told me, Jake, he said, I don't know if it really happened or not. He said, you know, it's a chap that's so com completely convinced by the absolute perfect logic of that. Makes for a very small world, but it is completely logical. That he was so convinced that he felt, you know, he really needed to make clear. So he wrote a letter to a local newspaper setting out point by point the exact arguments for solipsism and concludes, so personally I'm a solipsist myself, I'm surprised there aren't more of us about. Madeline Engel is, is a heroine of mine. Yeah. Yes, I love her. But she said once that while she was not a universalist and didn't believe in hell, because she pretty much didn't believe in the Bible, there it is, but she also believed that it was empty, ultimately, mm. and that to deny that was to deny God's freedom of will mm. and his readiness to never give up on him. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very important, because there was a lot of the Lord's sovereignty. Oh, absolutely. If you haven't... She writes poetry, but she she wrote poetry. She wrote children's books, very very beautiful. She, her most famous one is called A Wrinkle in Time, um, and it's a beautiful science fiction book. Um, in A Wrinkle in Time, she takes about a paragraph and explains the scientific concept of the yeah. character to another yeah. book. And two years later, one of the astronauts yeah. was being interviewed on a news program. Yeah. I thought of this earlier. Yeah, and then it was there, yeah, yeah. When she was asked about it earlier, she said, I love it when my books know more than I do. 
that's right. She's, she's, she's great. Yeah, so that's touching on the universalist um, thing or not. Um, I'm sure that the longing and prompting to find our way home to our Father is itself given by him. I mean, when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. You know, you come and get, um, you know, St. Augustine, you this for us, yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So there's something blessed even in the restlessness. But to the outward observer, the restlessness may actually manifest itself in all kinds of ungodliness. You know, a person who is restless may compensate for the restlessness or express the restlessness by all kinds of, um, you know, apparently indulgent and destructive and addictive behavior, which is all to do with the heart longing. You know, so you can never rush to judgment. Do not judge and you will not be judged. before you know the name of the way. Um, which one often, you know, one's often on a road before one knows the name of the road. One just has a feeling this is probably the right road. And, um, you know, <laughs> so the occasion I, when I was doing my research for my Coleridge book, I was invited by um, another poet, Greville Lindop, who, among other things, wrote the literary guide to the Lake District. And he invited me to go spend a week with him up in the lakes, re going together on the walks that Wordsworth and Coleridge did. So I could get it, it was wonderful, you know. And I thought, well, he really knows the way. Like, he's written the book. That's probably cool. Okay. So we met, I don't know, in Keswick or somewhere. And, you know, and I found a particular bit that they walked in the town, and we got a bit lost. You know, and we're walking down this, and, and Greville Lindop, to his great humiliation, had to stop us. And look, we're looking, we're looking for this road. It's actually called the Poet's Way. And... That's it. You're on it. <laughs> so we two poets, you know, one of whom was an expert on these, aren't we, were together walking down a road called the Poet's Way, without knowing we were actually on it, you know. Well, perhaps, perhaps this is maybe we should move on to the vine, just in terms of your responses back before I reread those two poems and we break briefly for some tea. Um, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. It's an extraordinary thing he's asking to do. In a sense, Holy Communion is the only thing that really makes sense of this. When he, when he, he actually wanting us to be in him and him in us. You know, eliminates all that distance. You know, he can't make God distant and difficult if he's going to be in us and through us. And there's some sense in which saying of the wine, this is my blood, is exactly saying we're going to be one body, as it were, what circulates between us. And yet what circulates between us is, is wine. Um, needless to say, I'm the first poet who's tried to kind of figure some of this stuff out. And one of my favourite couplets of all time in his poem, The Agony, in which he says, Love 
is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. You know, but it's the same thing that's flowing between us. Um, so I guess that's part of what it means about being granted. But what do you make, I mean, what sense do you feel if Christ says to you, abide in me, let me abide in you. What is, that, what is that actually going on there? I mean, how do you, how, you know, he gives you the violence and means which to think about it, but not because they're any means you could use them. Yeah, how does that relate to getting into a particular place to meet with him and worship him when you're free? He's doing something with outside and inside. That's it. How does that work for you? Perhaps particularly as a meditative community, I'd be interested to hear. Do you use the words bide or abide in any other? What do you do with the words like that? When I think of abide, I think of permanent. Yeah, right, yeah. Being at home, resting at home. And in relation to meditation, it's like, you know, talking about permanent, we're not trying to avoid the world. We're not trying to compete. We're not out there doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Abiding is a form of being with someone at home. Exactly. It is being at home. We get abode and abide are obviously related words. Um, so. <laughs> That's really rather attractive, isn't it, to be asked to be at home with God, or God to say, can I just come and be at home with you? Because it's the opposite of, now let's have an improving study group, or, you know, let's talk theology together, or I'd like to call you into the study and give you a list of the things you did wrong last week. I mean, there might be places for that, but there's not, you know, this is just saying, let's put our feet up together, let's actually just be. Abiding is a kind of simply being at home. And that, that's immensely attractive. But churches don't do it very well because they're much more interested in, you know, either coming to the study for a ticking off or, you know, coming to the lecture hall for a course rather than just be, abide. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, because it's the depth out of which yourself comes, it's the depth of God out of which. Yeah, which is what I think is meant by the root image of the vine. That if you see a vine, obviously you you I don't know if you've been to vineyards and stuff, but the actual vine itself, like the root vine, is this really big, thick quite stunted, low, 
unpromising, gnarly thing, you know, with great roots under the earth. And then the vines come off and are trained along, you know, the things for ages, you know, and they but however far they are, however far the furthest central colour, in the end it is physically and actually and viscerally connected into that stock and stem from which it flows. So that translated, I think, back into a meditator's understanding of we do understand that there's a superficial self and there's this little scurrying squirrels at the top of the tree running around and around thinking about food and nuts and storing stuff and all of that's going on. You know, and then let's get a little bit closer to the trunk as branches and we can go down and we know, you know, there's a much deeper root of who we are. And one of the things that meditation allows us to do is to get deep into that. But what this is saying is however deep we go into that, insofar as we're still dealing with our own personal selfhood, there is something deeper still, which is, if you like, the original stock and stem of the vine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then we get it, and we get down into the things, and we're kind of, you know, grafted in. Virgin and springing, yeah, yeah. I know what Jesus in this passage does, but he doesn't leave it there. He says you prune so as to grow more, rather than to grow less. At no point does Jesus make pruning an end in itself. That's really important because there's some people who seem to think pruning is an end in itself, you know, and it's not. It's an end towards the greater flourishing and growth of the plant. So the flourishing and growth is is the point, yeah. I'm not sure whether I'm reading something that doesn't quite fit, but particularly this season, the images of growth, uh, I'm getting struck by the seasonality. Yeah. But the unfurling of the leaf happens round about now after a period of dormancy. Yeah. And the image in my head, uh, once again, it, it's triggered off by what you've written. It's not. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I wanted that sense of just the beginnings of movement, that first unfolding in this. So I wanted to go by direct contrast in, uh, from himself deep planted in the ground of love. So this is Jesus the vine, now himself planted in uh, the ground of God's being, the ground of love, rooted and grounded in love. 
and then to go straight from the deep planting to the where we are, or where we might be in the first unfoldings of faith, to feel a leaf unfold, a tender shoot as tendrils curl, unfurl, so that unfold, unfurl, burgeoning out. And then I wanted to have the sense of the way a growing plant accommodates itself, if you like, to its own new growth. So I talked about as branches give a little to the swelling of the grape, that as it were, the branch itself has to bear the weight of the grape. And those little mutual adjustments that the whole living being is making to allow for its own growth, which, I mean, if you want to do parallels of churches, that's really important, you know, the giving a little in order to kind of, you know, let them, the other thing happen and all of that. Is, is, is but we sort of do it, do it within ourselves. Uh, and then my idea, again, seasonal, was the notion of the gradual perfection, round and full, to bear within oneself the joy and hope of good vintage. I'm borrowing a little bit here from the great um, uh, mystical poet Rainer Maria Rilke, um, who in several places uses the image of oneself being a fruit hanging on a bough, waiting to drop, and about the, full, the fullness of the filling, and, and the way the dropping and the falling is thinking about our living and dying can all be gracious parts of something. And um, he uses that image of the filling or swelling fruit as a, a kind of spiritual state which is ready to let go. Uh, and, uh, and that's a very beautiful beautiful thing as well. And, and, uh, and Rilke, Rilke does it there. So I was trying to anticipate that. Um, so then, yeah, just to finish with the image of the, the um, to being made glad. I think, uh, according to our schedule, we're, we're supposed to have had our tea break already. There we go. Should we just have a little break for tea and then um, have some Q&A? I'll read the final poem, the I Will Be With You, I think right at the end. We'll keep that for the end.